My name is Father Nick Blaha, and I would like to welcome you to our second spring semester talks on the rocks. Tonight, we have somebody, <clears throat> I'm not sure I can really convey uh, how, how privileged we are, how blessed we are to have our speaker here tonight. So this, this providential opportunity prevent, presented itself through um, his gracious invitation to speak at the Kansas Catholic College Student Convention, which took place this past weekend in Pittsburgh, Kansas, and we sort of piggybacked along with them <coughs> and invited Dr. Alquist here to, to speak and, and address us. Fifteen years, Dr. Alquist hosted a television series on EWTN called The Apostle of Common Sense, popularizing the work of G.K. Chesterton. I could hardly list to you the number of periodicals and other, um, others who have interviewed him and um, featured him in, the, in their own work, but I think one of the most beautiful things that he's done is co-founded a, a, a school called the Chesterton Academy up in his current hometown of Minneapolis, uh, a classical school that is meant to adapt the sensibilities of Chesterton's worldview to induct young people into, into a way of seeing the world, this poetic, sensory, joyful, mirthful, and dramatic way of experiencing the world. So this isn't just theory for him. This is very much about um, <clears throat> drawing people more deeply into a way of seeing and a, and a way of being. Um, I've had a, a little bit of time to get to know Dr. Alquist, a very impressive and friendly and convivial and humble man. His greatest work are his uh, wife and children, uh, to whom he is very devoted, Abraham, Emily, DeLorean, Moon Unit, Jill, and Timothy. Um, apparently, he had a little stint of uh, intense fandom of Frank Zappa at some one point. We all have a past, right? We all have a past. No shame, no judgment. So without further ado, I would like to welcome to the stage for your attention, Dr. Dale Alquist. All right, thank you very much, Father, for a great work of fiction. Well, since you told the baboon story, I should tell the gorilla story. Yeah, I'll tell the gorilla story. So this guy goes to uh, a zoo to get a job. And uh, he says to the zookeeper, can I, can I work here? I've always wanted to work at a zoo. And the zookeeper says, we have no openings at all right now. I'm very sorry. We can't help you. He says, oh, no. I really, you don't understand. I've always wanted to work at, at the zoo. I would do anything to work at the zoo. And the zookeeper says, anything? Yeah, okay. We, we have a job for you. Um, our gorilla just died. See, I just told this story at Pitt State two days ago. So uh, our gorilla just died, and uh, it's our biggest attraction. We need someone to dress up as a gorilla until we can acquire a real gorilla. He says, I'll do it. I'm ready. He says, OK, you start right now. Here's the monkey suit, go put it on, get in the gorilla exhibit. And he did. He's dressed up as a big ape. He's acting like one, and he's very credible. The, the crowds love it. They continue to line up to see the most popular exhibit at the zoo. One day he's out there, and he, there's a tree at the edge of the exhibit next to the fence. He crawls up the tree, and there's a branch hanging out into the lion's exhibit. He's rattling the branch, harassing the lion. The lions, and the crowds love it. They, 
attendance doubles and uh, it's going very well. And so one day he's out there, I crawls up the tree, gets out on the branch harassing the lion and you know what happens next, right? The tree branch breaks. He falls into the lion's exhibit and the crowd's just, whoa, they got their faces pressed up against the fence because this lion is slowly crouching and going towards the guy dressed up as gorilla. So he sees this lion coming closer to him. He looks at the crowd, he looks at the lion, looks at the crowd, and the lion's getting closer. And, and finally he just goes, help! And the lion says, shut up or we'll both get fired. It's like, it's like having a baboon staring at you, right? So, so there is actually a, re a reason why I told that story. And it is connected to G.K. Chesterton. Chesterton says that man is the only wild animal. Only man can be completely unpredictable. All of the other creatures that God has made can pretty well be observed and their behavior predicted because none of them have that one distinct human characteristic of free will. At a certain point, no matter how many human sciences we set up, the expert says Chester will be right nine times out of ten, but the tenth time comes. And at a certain point, man will either completely disappoint us or completely surprise us. Free will. It's the, it's the element that helped draw Chesterton to the Catholic Church because the Catholic Church holds free will in such an important place. All the human sciences really are an attack on free will. They all try to explain away our behavior. They try to attribute our behavior to things outside of ourselves that we can't control, whether it's biology or psychology or sex or gender or economics. But they, they, they try to attribute all our behavior to things outside of ourselves that we can't control. Only the Catholic Church gives us the dignity of having responsibility and freedom. And so, it's one of the great things about Chester. He's always defending free will in a world that is always attacking it. So who is Chester? I'll give you the quick introduction here for those of you who wonder what you're doing sitting here right now. Like Joe, the truck driver. All right. So. This is, this is what I would say to Joe if you were still sitting here. G.K. Chesterton, one of the most prolific writers who ever lived, did all of his writing in the early 20th century, the first third of that century. During that time, he wrote 200, well, he wrote 100 books. He wrote 200 introductions to other books. He wrote almost 2,000 poems, including an epic book-length poem. His books are on all different subjects, on philosophy and history and psychology and economics and politics and social criticism and art. He wrote novels, he wrote plays. He wrote a very famous series of detective stories featuring a priest, Father Brown. When he came up with the Father Brown stories, it kind of revolutionized detective fiction because up until that time, about 1912, all detective fiction was one of two kinds. 
it was either Sherlock Holmes or bad imitations of Sherlock Holmes. <laughs> they always involved the super sleuth, the uh, superhuman superhero detective who knew way too much stuff, <laughs> like those, uh, those dweebs on CSI, right? Oh, yes. Based on the cell structure of the uh, left fingernail, this type of seaweed only exists in three different parts of the Atlantic Ocean. <laughs> because everybody knows that stuff, right? You know, the Sherlock Holmes guy who can uh, hear someone walking in the next room and figure out that one of his parents is Lithuanian. <laughs> Father Brown is, did something completely new. He's, he was the underdog detective. The one who doesn't appear smarter than anybody. In fact, he actually seems a little dumber than everybody else because he's a priest. <laughs> Pause to take a glass of wine. And so the Father Brown stories have the detective, the suspects, and the readers all on the same plane. They all have the same clues available to them. Nobody has any special knowledge of anything. All the clues are right there. And what Chesterton does is he shocks you with something that you already know. Because he's told you the solution, you just didn't see it. And then when he actually reveals it, you go, and I'll do it in slow motion. That's, if a detective story is well written, that should be the reaction. You should feel stupid and smart at the same time. It's the, it's the only kind of fit literature that makes you feel good when it makes you feel stupid, because there it was. You saw the answer, except you didn't see it. You were staring right at it. G.K. Chesterton uses that technique in everything he writes. He shocks you with things that you already know. And, uh, and so he, he created the underdog detective. Of course, using a priest as the, uh, as the detective did shock a lot of people because it didn't occur to them that someone who listens to confessions all day might know something about how evil works, how the criminal mind might function. And so, uh, so he did that. But then in addition to uh, all those other things he wrote, he was primarily a journalist. He wrote for the newspapers. That's how he made his living. And during his time as a journalist in England and writing for American papers as well, he wrote over 5,000 literary essays. 5,000. I want you to go back home tonight and write an essay. Because that's what you were going to do anyway, right? Yeah. And then, and then tomorrow, go and write another essay, okay? So that will be two essays then, okay? <laughs> so now you're on a roll. I, if you can just keep doing that, write an essay every day without taking Sundays off for the next 15 years, you can get, get 5,000 of them cranked out. Then you can write your poetry, your detective stories, your novels, that book on St. Thomas Aquinas that you've always wanted to write. You have plenty of time for those after you get those 5,000 essays done in the next 15 years. 
How did he do that? Well, one way he did it was he could write two essays at one time, like so many of us. <laughs> he could write one out in longhand and dictate an entirely different essay to his secretary at the same time. So you see, that would cut your writing time in half, wouldn't it? Pretty soon, you could just start working one day a week, like a priest. Right? And because he was always writing, always under a deadline, like students, always under a deadline, he didn't pay attention to those little things in life that completely consume our attention. He let his wife take care of those things. His wife, Frances, who made sure he got up, got dressed, got fed, got to his desk, got to his appointments, reminded him what his deadlines were because he was always writing, always focused. Because he was always focused and not paying attention to those other things, he was quite useless without his wife. And she totally took care of him. It was a great relationship. But once in a while, she could not accompany him to an appointment or to a speech and then disaster would ensue immediately. He once uh, got off a train in the days before cell phones, I know it's hard to imagine, and walked to a telegraph station and sent a telegram to his wife. M at Market Harborough, where ought I to be? <laughs> once uh, took a cab, gave the cab driver the address, which was across the street. Get, uh, once got into a cab and to go to the offices of GK's Weekly, the newspaper that he was the editor of, didn't know his own address. The cab driver had to stop and get a copy of the newspaper to, uh, to get him to his own address. He, he said, to be absent-minded means to be present-minded about something else. And that's what he was. He was present-minded about something else. And then, of course, getting out of the cab was the other great adventure because Chester was 300 pounds. And one story has the cab driver struggling to help him out of the cab, and he said, perhaps if, if you try to get out sideways, Mr. Chesterton, and he said, I have no sideways. <laughs> he said it's impossible to be fat in secret. But he said he was the, the politest man in all of England because he could stand up on a bus and offer his seat to three women at one time. <laughs> he also said that he was the, uh, the jolliest man in all of England, because there's such a lot of me having a good time at once. <laughs> and yet this, uh, this overgrown elf, who used to uh, amuse children at birthday parties by catching buns in his mouth, wrote an essay in the Illustrated London News that inspired Gandhi to begin leading a movement for the independence of India. And he wrote a novel that inspired Michael Collins to start a war with England for the independence of Ireland. And he wrote a book called The Everlasting Man that was read by a young atheist named C.S. Lewis, who found that his life was totally changed by the experience of reading The Everlasting Man. He said it was the first reasonable defense of Christianity that he ever read. And he said a young man who's serious about his atheism cannot be too careful about what he reads. 
He also wrote a book called Orthodoxy that was read by a young PhD student who, when he finished his dissertation, went and asked Chesterton to write the introduction to the book that he intended to publish of his dissertation. Chesterton often would help out young first-time authors by writing an introduction to their book because nobody would publish their book unless it had an introduction by G.K. Chesterton. And this guy knew that, so he asked Chesterton to write the introduction. And Chesterton said, well, I don't know anything about philosophy. He says, well, of course you do, Mr. Chesterton. Your book, Orthodoxy, is one of the most important works of philosophy of our generation. And Chesterton laughed and said, okay, well, we're, we're defending the same thing, so we have to help each other out. So he wrote the introduction to the first book ever written by Fulton Sheen. Fulton Sheen said the writer who influenced him the most was G.K. Chesterton. And he attended Chesterton's funeral. So I'll tell you, this was an influential writer, an important, a, a giant of English literature and of critical thinking in the 20th century. And yet he totally disappeared. He died in 1936. World War II came along. A whole group of people forgot about Chesterton. The, 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 the institutions that are responsible to keep up the literary legacy of great writers utterly failed to, to keep teaching Chesterton, even though he was taught in almost every university during his lifetime. But they stopped teaching him so that by the 1950s there were very few, if any, references to Chesterton are in, in their academic courses. And uh, by the end of the 60s, he was gone altogether. When I discovered Chesterton in the early 80s, there were probably only six of his books still in print at that point. And uh, now there's over 75 of his books back in print. Uh, what happened? How did Chesterton disappear? Why? Well, certainly I told you about the fact that the, the people responsible for keeping him going didn't fulfill their responsibility by teaching him. But there's a problem with teaching Chesterton. There's no, there's no department where he fits. <laughs> he, uh, he's too literary for the philosophy and theology departments, but he's way too theological and philosophical for the literary departments. His economic ideas, which absolutely deserve to be studied, don't fit into any category. His literary criticism, his, uh, his social criticism, again, doesn't, it, it, it covers too many disciplines. And, and we are too narrow and too compartmentalized in our thinking and in the way we've set up our academic institutions. So you have the irony of the 300-pound writer who's fallen through the cracks. <laughs> but just the other problem is that Chesterton is always, no matter what he writes about, always ends by pointing to God. There's always an eternal reference point to what he writes about, which absolutely puts him against the grain of any of our modern thinking, of any of our relativistic thinking. And he knew that relativism was going to be a problem. He was very prophetic in his ideas. What makes him so interesting to read right now is that he seems to be writing more for our time than for the time in which he wrote. He sees all the things that we're going through, but he has this weird vantage point of seeing them 100 years before they happened. He, he predicted both the rise and the fall of the Soviet Union. 
predicted the revolution would take place, predicted that it would collapse. Um, he, he said there's going to be a worse problem coming from America than from Russia because he said the next great heresy, he said this in 1926, the next great heresy is going to be an attack on sexual morality. And he said the madness of tomorrow is much more in Manhattan than it is in Moscow. And, and he saw that there was going to be an attack on the family. Uh, and if the, if the family breaks apart, he said the whole society will break apart. He said it would start with an attack on, on marriage itself to the ease of, of divorce. He said uh, when he came to America and found out that married couples could be divorced for incompatibility, he said, well, then they should all be divorced. Because men and women as such are incompatible. The whole point of marriage is to work through the incompatibility. <coughs> marriage is a duel to the death. <laughs> it's a good one, isn't it? He said the problem with the sexes today, he said, is that each sex is trying to be both sexes at once. And he saw that there'd be an attack on, on the, the place of sex in a society. He said, as soon as sex ceases to be a servant, it becomes a tyrant. And we live under a tyranny of sex right now. And he was absolutely right about that. And he said the separation of sex from marriage, the separation of sex from from uh, birth, it, he, he said contraception will have all these, these ramifications leading to divorce, perversion, infidelity, all the same things that Pope Paul VI predicted in Humanae Vitae. Chesterton said them 40, 50 years before the Pope. Turns out that Pope Paul VI read Chesterton, <laughs> of course. He was an Italian priest reading a French translation of, of Chesterton. And, uh, and he saw there'd be a, a misconception about the importance of um, the, the natural world. He said there'd be a, an undue emphasis on nature. He said nature worship always leads to something unnatural. And he said um, that as soon as you have animal worship, you will have human sacrifice which is why you have all these pet stores and very few baby stores. He also said that uh, nature is not our mother. Nature is our sister because we both have the same father. And if we have that attitude towards nature, not looking at nature as an authority over us, but as something created along with us, well, we have a, a better attitude. We, yeah, we love our sister. We take care of our sister. We enjoy our sister but she has no authority over us. We, we, we worship God, the creator. And as soon as we, Chester says, what, what the, you know, creation is what the wiser of us call nature. Because as, as, as long as we understand there's a creator involved, we have a different attitude towards nature. He also predicted that there'd be this, this new emphasis on science against religion and on the technical and material. And he said, We've, we will get seduced by new technology. We'll become dependent on it so that 
we won't, it won't be serving us anymore as a tool, but we'll be serving it. I just got to take this call one second. This won't take long at all. Hang on. Sorry. He said, he said, we've come up with the best forms of communication in all of history precisely at the moment when we have nothing to say. And he said this, that the modern world is going to create sort of a malaise so that we don't even appreciate normal things anymore. He said, we don't appreciate normal marriage, normal worship, normal ownership, and we don't even appreciate life itself. And he also said there was a, a, a problem with modern education because he said it ought to be the oldest things that are taught to our students and to our children. Instead, we're always trying out new ideas and new fads, and we're experimenting on our children. He said, our children are exposed to educational philosophies that are younger than we are, younger than our students. And, uh, and then he, he also said that there, uh, he, he said, what we found, in 1930, he said, we found a way to get to the North Pole. He said, we'll probably find a way to get to the moon. The only question is, in both cases, why we want to go there. We, we, don't, we have this, this continual reach with no purpose, with no philosophy, with no grounding. And he also said in 1932 that the world was headed towards a new war and it would be the worst war in all of human history. And it would start on the Polish border. Now think about G.K. Chesterton and his absolutely accurate predictions. Is that it, it, it truly a prophetic viewpoint, insight, is that when you talk about a prophet, is that prophets tend to sound gloomy. They, they, they're always talking about doom. And G.K. Chesterton is anything but a doom and gloom writer, but he is a prophet. But if you actually go and read the Old Testament prophets, which of course as Catholics you would never do, they have a, there's something very surprising about these guys, is that they're not telling you this is what's absolutely going to happen. It's this is, what, this is what road you're on, and this is where this road ends. But you don't have to be on this road. You can repent, you can turn, and you can get into the right relationship with God again. You can get on the right road again. The prophet is always actually giving a message of hope when he says repent. The prophet is like when Isaiah says, seek the Lord while he may be found, and call upon him while he's near. And let the wicked forsake his way, and the unrighteous man his thoughts, and return unto the Lord. And he will have mercy and abundantly pardon. That is a message of hope. That is, that is great good news. And, and Chesterton is that kind of a prophet. He's just telling us to get back on the right road. He is warning us where the road that we're on is going to end. But it won't end that way if we get on the right road, it goes back to free will and the gorilla. <laughs> we, we have free will. We can make the right decision. We can repent, which is the first right decision. Chesterton is the most life-affirming, joyful writer of the 20th century. In a letter to his wife when they were engaged, he said, I don't think there's anyone who takes quite such a fierce pleasure in things being themselves as I do. The startling wetness of water 
it, it excites, it intoxicates me, the, the, the steeliness of steel, the muddiness of mud. The least grain of dust has never been praised enough. Chesterton says, the world will never starve for want of wonders, but only for want of wonder. And we should, we should not be so startled by the earthquake, but be more startled by the earth and, and, and less excited about the eclipse and more excited about the sun. Chesterton's always getting us to look at this great gift of existence and to appreciate it. Because what is the only possible response to the gift of life which we don't deserve? We do not deserve the gift of existence. What can you, how can you possibly resp respond to something that you do not deserve, that you have done nothing of your own credit to receive? There's only one thing you can do, and that's be thankful. And thanks informs everything that Chesterton does. He says thanks is the highest form of thought. And when we, when we go to Mass, we hear the priest say, what? We do well always and everywhere to give God thanks. But it's our, our duty to give thanks. It's right and just. And if we do it always and everywhere, if we are always and everywhere thankful, we don't have time for, we don't have time for doubt, for discouragement, for impatience, for anger, for any of the vices. Thanks is what informs the virtues and promotes the virtues. And it's why G.K. Chesterton was such a virtuous man, because he was so thankful. But in 1922, Chesterton shocked the world. It was, it was in the newspapers when it was announced that this intellectual giant of English literatures had been received into the Catholic Church. A lot of people were shocked because they, they thought that Chesterton already was Catholic. He, he'd already written a bunch of Father Brown stories. He'd been defending the Catholic Church all along. But they also thought he was too smart to become Catholic. George Bernard Shaw, his friend but philosophical opponent, fired off a letter, because he always used to make fun of Chesterton's what he called Roman Catholic hobby. But when Chesterton actually became Catholic, Shaw sent a letter saying, Gilbert, this is going too far. And he was asked why he became Catholic, and he said, to get rid of my sins. Only the Catholic Church can do that. When a man walks out of the confessional, he's five minutes old, and his whole life has just started over again. Only the Catholic Church can do that. And he said a Catholic is someone who has bucked up the courage to admit that there's something else that is smarter than he is. And he said to become Catholic doesn't mean leaving off thinking. It means learning how to think. And he became then a great defender of the Catholic Church. His writings, even though there was no great change in his writings, it's really hard to date anything before or after his conversion. He is taking the stand of the Catholic Church more overtly and more strongly. He wrote a book on St. Francis. He wrote a book on St. Thomas Aquinas. He wrote about conversion. And uh, he was really called upon uh, on many occasions to, to debate and defend the Catholic Church. And, 
And he certainly was attacked for, for that, that move he made. He, he went from being a writer to a Catholic writer, which in many people's mind made him smaller. Uh, when he considered just the opposite, it made him more universal. He says, the church is larger on the inside than it is on the outside. The outside world is narrow. The inside of the church truly is universal. And, uh, and he, he also clearly had a, a mystical connection to God and an expression that was truly mystical. His book on St. Francis absolutely shows an insider's understanding of mysticism, of a, a really a direct revelation and direct experience of God. He says the mystic is the one who's passed through the moment when there's nothing but God. And uh, when he was, when he became Catholic, his, uh, the Anglican vicar of Beaconsfield, the town where he lived, said, you know, I'm glad that Chesterton is becoming Catholic. He was never a very good Anglican. Because when he was Anglican, he never went to church. When he became Catholic, he, he never missed a day of obligation. He said, only a religion that is true could get me out of bed this early in the morning. And when he, when he received the Eucharist, when he went forward to receive the Eucharist, he actually had a physical reaction. He, his body would shake. He'd sweat. He had a difficult time even approaching the sacrament. And he was, at, he was asked, what's wrong? And he said, I am afraid of that tremendous reality. He knew. He knew what it was he was about to do. He was about to have a physical relationship with the body of Christ, to take the body of Christ into himself. That's huge. If we, if we think about that, we should be on our knees. We should be on our faces. And Chesterton knew it. He made the sign of the cross over every uh, room when he entered it. He made the sign of the cross with his match before he lit his cigar. Holy smoke. <laughs> when, uh, when I first read Chesterton, I was a, uh, a very devout evangelical. I was a Baptist. And I suppose I should answer that question. Someone, wanted to, someone asked me, Dale, how did you start reading Chesterton? I started reading Chesterton like so many other people on my honeymoon. <laughs> and like any good Baptist, I went to Rome on my honeymoon. Uh, and I brought my wife with me. Um, <laughs> and we were in Rome on our honeymoon on the day that Pope John Paul II was shot. And naturally, I was a suspect because I was a Baptist. But, um, <laughs> but I had an alibi. I was reading G.K. Chesterton. Because what else are you going to do on your honeymoon in Rome if not read? And, uh, and I had this experience of reading The Everlasting Man, the book that C.S. Lewis found so influential, of realizing that, just like Dorothy L. Sayers said, when she first read Chesterton, it was like a strong wind coming into the building and blowing out all the windows. Just all of my preconceptions gone. Here was a writer who was a complete thinker, who, who wrote about everything, who put, put it all together. I was used to narrow, fine-tuned writers. This, this guy was huge. And I just wanted to keep, keep getting as much of this as I could. 
And Chesterton certainly brought me to the Catholic Church, like he brought so many others to the Catholic Church. But what really struck me was one day back in the early 90s when someone suggested that Chesterton should be canonized. And at that point, there were maybe 12 of us in the world who liked Chesterton, and most of them were Catholic. And they all, the Catholics all thought that was a bad idea. Because, well, if he, if he became a saint, that would make him too Catholic. And people like Dale here wouldn't read him. And I, the one Baptist in the group said, are you kidding? Are you kidding? I said, our, our ideas of Catholic saints is that they're all barefoot 14-year-old girls. You need more 300-pound cigar-smoking saints. <laughs> I'm, I'm just telling you that for your own good. And I said, if you canonize Chesterton, I'll become Catholic. And no one did anything. There was no... <laughs> I was expecting a priest to show up with a certificate saying, Dale, you're a Catholic and Chesterton's a saint. It was a pleasure doing business with you. Thank you. <laughs> Nothing happened. I mean, offers like this don't come along very often, and no one took it. I had to become Catholic through all the normal channels. And then I found myself being the one who had to lead the charge for Chesterton's canonization which has been just a great pleasure. And we are at the point where um, we're probably just, with, hopefully within months, but hopefully within a year, of announcing the opening of his cause. But it's in the uh, investigation stage right now. I do have some, uh, some prayer cards here. So if anybody wants one, I'll give you one. Just come and see me. Here's the key to my hotel room, OK? <laughs> and, and so. Uh, Chesterton, really, we, we really feel, deserves to be counted among the saints because he is a saint for our time. Chesterton says the age is often converted by the saint who contradicts it the most. And G.K. Chesterton totally contradicts the age that we live in. He says, a dead thing goes with the stream, only a living thing goes against it. And that's our guy. And I hope you'll become friends with him. And now, I would like to take any questions that you might have. Thank you for your kind attention. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> All right. What do you got? Yes. Hello. Uh, thank you. Thank you for this talk. I have a question for you. Where can we start if, uh, if we want to get into Chesterton's works? And uh, also, like, who are some other authors you would suggest to immerse ourselves in to start becoming like the same kind of intellectual 300-pound giants? Well, becoming a 300-pound giant is not that difficult. <laughs> but if you, if you start with this table of books right here, well, of course, I didn't bring any books with me. but. Uh, Go to our website at chesterton.org. The, there's two introductory books I absolutely recommend because I wrote them. And I, the reason I wrote them is because I never was happy with the answer I gave to people when they said, where do I start reading Chesterton? So I wrote these two introduction bo books. 
it's like you send two limousines to pick up the guy in case the first one doesn't get there. You know, you send the second one. So the first one's called The Apostle of Common Sense, and the second one is called Common Sense 101. The first one is an overview of Chesterton's most important writings. The second one is really Chesterton by ideas and by the main themes he writes about. The books are full of Chesterton quotations. I do very little writing of my own in there. That's what makes them such good books. Uh, and, uh, and so those are the two that I really recommend people start with. Uh, and you can get them at Chester.org. Do not buy them from the river in South America. Okay? Amazon is not apostolate. It's not an apostolate. But also, don't go to Chester.com because you will be buying hydraulic valves if you do that. So, uh, so Chester.org. Then, as far as pure Chester goes, there's a book of essays I recommend called uh, In Defense of Sanity, the best essays of Chesterton, a very good way for a new reader to just get short bits of Chesterton, an essay at a time. And then uh, the, the kind of four fundamental books that I recommend, Orthodoxy, Everlasting Man, and then the St. Francis and the St. Thomas Aquinas books. And of course, the Father Brown stories are always there. You can't go wrong with them. So that, that's good. But Chesterton.org also has plenty of introductory material on it as well. As far as other writers, well, uh, Chesterton, you have to talk about the writers that both influenced him and that he influenced, okay? Now, the writers that influenced him, Shakespeare, Charles Dickens, Robert Louis Stevenson, he was influenced by English literature. He didn't read theological writers, but they helped form his worldview. Uh, his book on Dickens is one of the most fabulous books you'll ever read. Uh, it's, just, it's just an amazing portrait of hope and the, the human comedy that you could ever read. He also, uh, I, I've compiled all of his writings on Shakespeare. Ch Chesterton, is, another reason why he deserves and should be taught is because he opens up English literature so well. The writers he influenced, well, I mean, he obviously influenced C.S. Lewis. You've heard of him. Uh, he influenced Peter Kraft as well. Peter Kraft told me that um, if he, he said Kierkegaard would have been enough to keep him a Protestant if he hadn't read Chesterton, because Chesterton answers all the questions that Kierkegaard asks. Um, the the uh, another writer that he uh, that he influenced that uh, Father Nick doesn't know this and, and claims it's not true, but he influenced Walker Percy as well. Uh, and I, I guess the, uh, the Chesterton's uh, very good friend and colleague, Hilaire Belloc, is another writer worth, worth reading. Re read his book on the new, called The Great Heresies. Yeah. What else? Thank you. You're welcome. Uh, Chesterton talks about loving fairy tales. Uh, what are the... Uh, collections of fairy tales. What fairy tales should we read? Uh, what, what, uh, where, what are the, the best sources for those? And maybe some that we haven't heard of, or I don't know. Well, the, the, he refers to fairy tales, not the ones you read, but the ones you're told in the nursery. And we all know those already. We, we know Jack and the Beanstalk. We know Cinderella. We know Beauty and the Beast. The, re, the reason he refers to the fairy tales are the ones that are told. Yeah. And then there's these messages, he says, which are the universal messages. Jack and the Beanstalk is about courage, and that you have to be afraid of a thing before you can be brave. And 
Cinderella is about the, the truth that the humble will be exalted. We know that story. That's what it illustrates. Beauty and the Beast is about the paradox of love, that you have to love a thing first and then make it lovable afterwards. So, uh, you know, you, you don't see Chester recommending that we read a certain fairy tale. He just recommends that we remember the fairy tale because it's a universal truth. But he does like George MacDonald. <laughs> and he recommends George MacDonald. I hope I'm not being too personal. What are your favorite devotions? My favorite devotions? Now, you mean that, that I read or that I, the people that I'm devoted to? We, we, what do you mean by that? Prayers. Oh, oh my prayers. OK. Thank you. I, I, generally, I generally read the, uh, pray the Psalms. And I've memorized a lot of psalms, so I pray them from heart, by heart. But I, I certainly, certainly do the rosary as well. I try to do that every day if I can. But, but uh, praying the psalms is probably my, my unique devotion. Of, uh, it, it goes back to my Protestant days of memorizing scripture. But uh, it, it's a good, that's a good devotion. Are you, um, uh, have you met Peter Kraft? Yes. Yeah, we, we got along instantly. It was, we, we, we connected on so many levels. And I, what I really liked was the story of his conversion when he, he told me firstly how he, he was a, attending Calvin College and basically read himself into the, into the Catholic Church. And, and he went to, went to the priest and said, I'd like to become Catholic. And the priest said, OK, what's the girl's name? <laughs> <laughs> and where will you be speaking next? Uh, Geographically close to here. <laughs> um, I I'll be speaking in Wichita this summer in in June. That's close to here, isn't it? Yes. Yeah. Uh, but I'll be in I'll be in Ponchatoula, Louisiana, in in March. That's close to here too. <laughs> oh, and then in May I'll be in Croatia. So you, you talked about, briefly, Chesterton's social and economic yes. thoughts. Uh, I know that's a huge topic, but maybe just a, a few words about w what he saw as the, the right way to live and organize our common life. Well, we promised Joe Lali that we were going to speak about everything. So we, let's hit economics quickly. Chesterton uh, promoted an idea which he and Belloc called distributism, uh, a title which they both said was bad and in inadequate. But the idea is it's based on Pope Leo XIII's encyclical, Rerum Novarum, where he recognized the evils of industrial capitalism and also the evils of the natural response to it, which was socialism, saying that they're both not uh, in line with the teachings of the Catholic Church. And the Pope said the solution involves wider property ownership, that people should become uh, independent of uh, of their needs to, to be dependent either on the state or on big corporations. And he was actually fighting against the idea of widespread wage slavery, where people don't have really uh, control of their own lives. They've lost their freedom. Goes back to Chester's argument for free will. Uh, it's, it's an argument against centralization, either centralization by the government or by an economic uh, or commercial entity, where people should own and control their own means of livelihood. Uh, sm many small businesses, many family-owned businesses. And if you have 
a, a, a society with many small businesses, it will not be so subject to the whims of economic uh, waves and falls because it won't be so top heavy. You know, we just, see, we just saw the news about the uh, stock market. Well, you know, how many people are really involved in the stock market? A very small percentage of, of the country. And yet, what happens is the stock market seems to control everything. But if people, uh, if there was more people that were independent, they would be less swayed and less affected by the whims of economic winds. And so, um, Chesterton says that uh, uh, it starts with a tendency against a tendency of people trying to uh, patronize local businesses, uh, keeping their money local, being local businesses. Uh, achieving independence. Chester says the opposite of employment is not unemployment. The opposite of employment is independence. And so that's the basis of distributism. But it is the, where, where capitalism, which used to be called individualism, is based on individual uh, interests. And socialism is based on the community interests. Distributism is based on the family's interest. That the family is the basic unit of society and everything in the society must support and nurture the family. If the family suffers, the whole society suffers. If you, if you want a good introduction to distributism, my book called The Complete Thinker has a, a one chapter explanation of it called Buying and Selling. There's also a book we wrote, or we, we published called The Hound of Distributism. It gives a good explanation of it. Asaph, question number two. Question number two. Uh, you've spoken a few times about the family and Chesterton's uh, emphasis on family life. So as a father of six, can you tell us just some practical um, wisdom that has really come into play for you raising your family in the light of Chesterton's uh, teachings and writings? Well, thank you. I, um, I am blessed with a, with a great family. We, we really try to, uh, to make the church the center of our lives. We, we pray together, but we also try to create together. We try to, we, we do music and, and art and uh, drama together. And doing a, a creative endeavors together just puts, everyone has a vested interest in that. We especially learn how to laugh together. Um, we have a, we've created a school together and uh, but you know, just there's these basic things like the importance of the family meal, because that's the time when everyone's sitting down and, and talking to each other. It, if you don't have that time, people just start, they just start losing their relationship with each other. But you make that the focus of the day as much as possible. Um, it's it just amazing what a good influence that has. And then you know, the family prayer, even, even if you can just do one decade of the rosary together a day, that makes all the difference. Um, but other than that, our family's a total failure. <laughs> yeah, you're sure welcome. Um, you talked about G.K. Chesterton uh, disappearing from like academic life. Mm -hmm. I'm an education major. What can I do when I get into my own classroom in the high school to like integrate him with the restrictions that are placed on me as an educator? Well. Get out of there, first of all. <laughs> but until you do, you can, you can incorporate Chesterton into anything you're teaching. 
absolutely anything. No matter what subject you're teaching, you can incorporate Chesterton into it, if nothing else, just through the great quotations. There's always going to be an appropriate Chesterton quotation for whatever you're teaching. And then that plants the seed. And after about the, the sixth zinger, they go, I want to know more about this guy. And if nothing else, they'll look for him on the internet by themselves and start finding him. But start by quoting Chesterton and a great, but no matter what subject you're teaching, there is a Chestertonian perspective on it that, will, that easily can be incorporated. He's, he's the only writer we can say that about. He's the only writer that fits into every class you can possibly teach. Chesterton has so many great quotations that <laughs> really bring out his wisdom. I wish you could give this group some of those. Uh, he's wonderful. No Chesterton quotations tonight. Oh. <laughs> oh, okay, I'll do a few. There's, there's some that you've all heard, like the, the Christian ideal has not been tried and found wanting. It's been found difficult and left untried. And he said, truth must be stranger than fiction because we have made fiction to suit ourselves. And he said, men will not argue about what they consider evil. They'll only argue about which evils they consider excusable. Where the Bible tells us to love our neighbors and to love our enemies, generally because they're the same person. <laughs> and he says, it's, it's distressing to contemplate how few politicians are hanged. And he said, we don't need a censorship of the press. We have a censorship by the press. <laughs> Our, uh, angels fly because they take themselves lightly. <laughs> and if there were no God, there would be no atheists. <laughs> and then there's... It's one of my favorites. It's not always wrong to go down to the lowest promontory and look down on hell. It's when you look up at hell that a serious miscalculation <laughs> has probably been made. I'm here all week, everybody. We... I got a million of them. If you want more Chesterton quotations, I recommend that you become a member of the American Chesterton Society and then you get Gilbert Magazine, the greatest magazine in the world, which is full of Chesterton quotations every two months. In fact, I will give away four copies of the magazine tonight, right here. All right, four, four lucky people are going to get copies of Gilbert Magazine because that's all I have with me. <laughs> so how are you going to get these? I have no idea. <laughs> but there's four of them here. And I, and I tell I'd run out of prayer cards, okay, there's three of them. <laughs> Aseth, you ask two questions, you get one. Oh, and then the, that newlywed couple, they get one too. So, Aseth, give one to the newlyweds over there too. I've got one copy of the magazine left. 
Maybe, maybe whoever asked the best questions. Well, okay, maybe just to end. Yeah. Um, and, and open up maybe for a more informal discussion, freewheeling. Um, as, as you're uh, in your position as the postulator for the, for the cause of Chesterton's canonization, um, I guess for every canonization there's a devil's advocate, right? That, that position of... <laughs> <laughs> Make it worth right. my while. So, so um, no. technically, did you know, Father, there actually is no longer a devil's advocate? All right. <laughs> but, but in the, in the course of, of the investigation and, and the apostate, the, the apostate is, is supposed to present both sides of the argument. Mm. And then, of course, when he presents the, uh, the case to, to the Congregation of Saints, they're supposed to rip it apart as much as possible. There's no formal devil's advocate anymore. But the question is, what are the arguments against Chester? That's what you're going to ask. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So there's probably three, three main things uh, uh, that, that will be brought up against Chesterton. The first one is cl the, the one that is almost always brought up, especially by people who don't know anything about Chesterton, even though they know nothing about Chester, they seem to always know that he was anti-Semitic. Even though they know nothing else about him, because he's managed to get that reputation totally undeserved, but it happened during his lifetime because he had a big run-in with some very corrupt Jewish uh, businessmen and politicians, uh, and his argument was that they were corrupt, not that they were Jewish. But because they were Jewish, they claimed that he was attacking them because they were Jews. It's just like uh, he's, he, he writes this great literary analysis of the Merchant of Venice, where he says the character of Shylock is not disliked because he's a Jew. He's disliked because he's a usurer. The reason why Antonio spits on him is because he lends money at interest. And Antonio lends money at no interest, which is what the Catholic Church teaches. And, uh, and Shylock hates Antonio because he's a competitor because he lends money at no interest. Uh, and his way of getting back to it was when Antonio needs to borrow money from Shylock, he says, I won't charge you interest, but if you don't pay me back, I'm taking a pound of your flesh. Because he just wants revenge. It's all about revenge. It's not a, it's not a Jewish Christian thing. It's not about blood. Uh, it, it was bad blood between two different races. It's, it's, about, um, it's about revenge and about uh, corrupt practices. And that's what Chester went after the, to, to these particular, these particular Jewish uh, individuals. He uh, he, in a, he, he always was defending the Jews. In fact, he he said the main problem with the Jews in Europe is that they are a nation without a country. They they have maintained miraculously their distinct identity without the advantage of having their own country. And what they need is really to have their own country again. And that's why he was a Zionist. And the Jews loved him for that, that he promoted the idea of restoring the, the Jewish homeland. And uh, it's, 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 to me, it's absolutely uh, maddening how that charge keeps coming up. But it's such a game stopper, because people don't want to actually talk about what Chesterton argues on anything. They just want to dismiss him with one epithet. So that's going to be the one that they're going to have to fight about the most. 
The other thing that they're going to talk about with Chesterton is he was fat. <laughs> it somehow didn't hurt Pope uh, John the Twenty-Third or Thomas Aquinas, um, but it's for some reason they want to bring it up about G.K. Chesterton. The fact is, Chesterton does not exhibit any uh, characteristics of a glutton. On the contrary, the eyewitness accounts was that he ate very little. Uh, his secretary was amazed by how little he ate. Uh, he had probably a glandular condition that contributed to his great weight. But then, then the killer. He smoked. <laughs> Do you know that when Pier Giorgio Frassati was beatified, and they unveiled his picture in St. Peter's Square, that heroic picture of him standing on the mountaintop with his pipe, they airbrushed out the pipe. Our Catholic Church did that. There's a lot of people that are going to have to be doing a lot of apologizing. When Chester gets canonized, there will be smoking in restaurants again. You mark, mark my word. We're going we're gonna to start get, claiming our rights to, to having a philosophy stick in hand while we are arguing philosophy. Anyways, those are, those are, the, those are the three that, because theologically he's right on, his virtue is there, his heroic virtue, his goodness. In fact, so many comments. My, uh, Joseph Pierce and I, good friends, He's a convert because of reading Chesterton. We both agreed, even though his intellectual arguments are outstanding and his defense of the Catholic Church is stunning, what drew us to him was his goodness. That's what drew us to him. And that's what's going to come out, is that this was a good man. Uh, one of his uh, closest friends who wrote the first biography of him after his death, his name was W.R. Titterton, he said, I hope, this is written within a year of Chester's death, I hope someday the Catholic Church will consider him as a saint. So I, and he was a convert because of reading Chester. He said, I don't know what the church's you know, requirements are for a saint, but I can say, knowing Chesterton, the one thing I know about him, he was always thinking about God. And it seems to me a saint is someone who is always thinking about God. God bless. Thanks very much. Thank you. happy to say that surpassed my wildest expectations. So that was, that was wonderful. Thank you. Uh, without a note, by the way, just freewheeling, speaking from your wealth, of, uh, treasury of, of knowledge. What a, what a great thing. I hope, I hope all of you just have, a, a, have an, an appetite that's been just whetted enough to, to say, I don't know where to begin, but I want to begin. That's, that's the goal. That's the goal. Um, my favorite quote from Chesterton, by the way, I, I could never have done what you just rattled off right there, but uh, a quote in favor of marrying for love, something that apparently was rare in Chesterton's day, or at least in, in, at some points in our past. And he said, <coughs> and I'm going to butcher this, but the sexes um, are like two stubborn pieces of iron. Now, people who argue in favor of, of marrying for love usually get the argument wrong. The reason 
you should marry for love and marry young is that, well, in order for two stubborn pieces of iron to be joined, they must be joined while they are red hot. An argument of, of in favor of marrying young. Uh, we have some in, in, in our number here today, tonight. <clears throat> so before we conclude, I just, I just want to point out our flyers on the tables in front of you. Please take these with you and spread them around. We've got more, but want to just um, place a little seed in your, in your calendar for our next Talks on the Rocks. We'll return to our ordinary venue on March 4th with Natalie Roberts, who will be speaking about the nursing hangover. You know, the whole origin of bringing her to, to Emporia came from a conference I attended with the Catholic bishops in Orlando over the summer. And, and there I spent some time with a group of people who, you know, if, if you think about it just objectively, are the most motivated, intelligent, disciplined, generous, driven, and sacrificial people you could ever meet. Right? I mean, you know who I'm talking about, Catholic priests. <laughs> but right behind them come nurses, the second most trusted profession in America. No, that's not true. They are the most trusted profession in America. And there are enormous challenges around that lifestyle, around that way of life. And so um, all of you who are involved in, in the caring professions in general, I think, will benefit from what Natalie will have to say next month. So we really invite all of you to come and, and hear her, her talk, which will, be, um, which will be outstanding and hit a lot of great points for all of us transitioning out into the professional world. So, <clears throat> you all have something? Good. <laughs> you know, we look around, yeah, I love that quote about how many politicians aren't being hanged. What's up, what's up? We got a memo. Anybody know what's going on with this memo? It's bad. That's all I know. It's bad. Since the last time we talked, Bitcoin has really tanked. And somewhere, men are, men are, are, are smiling and children are laughing, but in Boston, there is, there is none of that, for the mighty Brady has struck out. Sad day. Sad day. Hard times. Troublesome times, people keep saying. But let our lives be good, and the times will be good. We are the times, brothers and sisters, such as we are, such are the times. God bless you all. Thank you for your presence here tonight. We'll see you soon. <laughs>